I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about Justice Thomas's recent speech, big cases coming up for conference, and we'll interview appellate lawyer John Elwood. So Justice Clarence Thomas spoke at the Federalist Society Student Symposium, and Tiffany, you were in attendance. I was. Yeah, so tell us about his talk. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to hear Justice Thomas speak, and this time was no different. It's not just me. The crowd loved him. (laughs) Uh, When he was introduced, he got a standing ovation. Of course. And he gets so much flack from the left. It was really nice to see these 800 or so law students who really admire him, you know, showing him some love. Uh, The format was conversation style with Jen Mascott, a GMU professor, and his former law clerk. And she asked him a lot of really thoughtful questions. He talked briefly about textualism and how it's just such a natural thing because words have meaning. And he said, I think we're all textualists. When you see a stop sign, you stop. You don't say, oh, officer, I was looking at it more in a normative way, (laughs) Um, which was really funny. Uh, There were quite a few questions that he brought back to the topic of civility. He he said he was reading a book about the Tudors, and it's he, he thinks it's like we're going back to the Tower of London, except we're executing people with words and attacking people and not just ideas. And he spoke of Justice Ginsburg and said, you know, she's not my enemy. She's my colleague with whom I respectfully disagree. And he lauded uh, Fedzok for having civil debates, and he said, you know, that's what law schools used to be. And he said it was incumbent upon law students to take civil debates seriously. The justice also showed his real admiration for Justice White, uh, Justice Byron White. And I don't think I I knew that he really loved Justice White. Um, But he said he gave him a lot of great advice when he got on the court, including saying things like, you know, Clarence, it doesn't matter how you got here. It matters what you do while you're here. And he talked a little bit about attending seminary and what his faith means to him. I think my favorite line from the talk was, uh, I left the faith for 25 years. I ran away and I crawled back, so I'm not leaving again, (laughs) which I thought was very sweet. Yeah. And then finally, he talked about his favorite thing, which is traveling around the country with his wife, Ginny, on their bus, stopping at all the truck stops. And the Walmarts of America. Yes. He mentioned (laughs) staying in Walmart parking lots specifically. Um, And, you know, just seeing different parts of the country and talking to different people all around and sharing sharing, um, their experiences. Sounds like a great talk. And I'm always glad to hear Justice Thomas getting some love. Um, So... This Friday, the the justices are meeting for a conference, and there are a number of big cases that they are going to be looking at. Um, so in the conference, this is when the justices review the petitions that have been uh, sent to the court, and uh, they consider whether to grant cert or deny them. And they also talk about the cases that have recently been argued and how they're going to um, vote in those cases. So a few of the petitions um, that have been at the court for a while. First up is Garco Construction Company versus Secretary of the Army. So this case was brought by our friends at Consovoy McCarthy Park, and they represent a construction company that has a contract with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to build Air Force housing in Montana. So the company is seeking to recoup extra costs it incurred due to the Corps of Engineers' contradictory interpretations of an applicable regulation. The company lost in the lower courts, and now it has asked the Supreme Court to take up the case. So So the petition squarely presents an issue that some members of the court have expressed an interest in revisiting, and that's uh, seminal rock or our deference. So under this deference doctrine, which is sort of like Chevron deference but for agency regulations instead of statutes, courts defer to an 
agency's interpretation of rules it has promulgated as long as the interpretation is not plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the text. So some judges have expressed concerns about this and about the separation of powers problem here uh, by allowing agencies to not only write and enforce the law, but also interpret it. So this is uh, going to be at the conference this this Friday, and it'll be its seventh time that the justices have looked at it, uh, which is a sign, um, unfortunately, that one of the justices may be writing a dissent from denial of cert. Because uh, they typically don't hold over cases for this many conferences uh, when they're going to grant it. But you never know, because I think it was Trinity Lutheran last term that was relisted something like 17 times. And I know there were some extenuating uh, circumstances. Yes. But you never know. Yeah. Uh, next up is Azar v. Garza, formerly Hargan v. Garza. This is the case where a 17-year-old pregnant girl known as Jane Doe was caught entering the country illegally in Texas. And while in government custody, she asked for an abortion, but the federal government said they didn't want to facilitate the abortion. So she sued in federal court and was represented by the ACLU. And the D.C. Circuit ruled for her, clearing her path to get an abortion. Uh, the ACLU... Attorneys told the government that she was going to have a consultation with an abortion doctor, which is required under uh, Texas law, last October 25th, and then they have the abortion one day later on October 26th, and the lawyers agreed to keep the government informed about the schedule in order for so the SG's office could um, petition the Supreme Court to stay the DC Circuit's uh, decision so the the ACLU lawyers knew that this was happening but then uh, the abortion got moved up so the government couldn't file their petition on time and now the government has filed a petition asking the Supreme Court to vacate the DC Circuit decision so it won't uh, stand as precedent in future cases. And they also suggested that the court address the ACLU's misconduct, um, which is you know, an unusual thing for the SG to have to <laughs> do in a petition. The ACLU responded saying that the government lawyers failed to seek judicial review quickly enough is their fault, not ours. But when you lie to the federal government, it is sort of your fault. Um, so this case has been at conference four times so far, and the justices have requested the record from the D.C. Circuit. Uh, another case that they're going to look at is Hidalgo versus Arizona, and this is, does the death penalty violate the Constitution? So Abel Hidalgo uh, is the uh, criminal defendant in this case. He uh, committed two double murders, including one murder for hire, and he argues that the death penalty is cruel and unusual punishment and that there is a national consensus against it. He also challenges the state of Arizona's aggravating factors, which make a defendant uh, eligible for the death penalty. He argues that nearly every person convicted of first-degree murder in that state is eligible for the death penalty. So in a 2015 case, uh, Glossop uh, versus, I forget the... Gross. Glossop versus Gross, yeah. Uh, Justice Breyer, joined by Justice Ginsburg, wrote a dissenting opinion uh, expressing concerns about the constitutionality of capital punishment and, and sort of you know, asking for uh, for more cases to come up. Um, so this is is one of those such cases. And as of this week, the Hidalgo petition uh, will have been considered at ten conferences, which is a lot of conferences now. Um, so it could be another case where one of the justices may be working on a uh, a blistering dissent from denial of cert. <laughs> and finally, there's Sauce v. Bauer. I think that's how you. Sauce, sauce, we're going to go with sauce. Sounds good Um, to me. But this case is about the First Amendment and qualified immunity. It's brought by our friends at First Liberty Institute and by Jim Ho when he was at Gibson Dunn. 
Ho is a, a newly minted federal judge on the Fifth Circuit in Texas. And I, I also glanced at the amicus briefs and his wife, Allison Ho, who's also a rock star Supreme Court uh, litigator, uh, had filed an amicus brief. So it's all in the family in this case. <laughs> um, but in this case, police were responding to a noise complaint at the home of Marianne Sauce. She was apparently listening to talk radio pretty loudly. Got to turn down that wrestling box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she hadn't opened the door when the officers first approached her house because she said they didn't identify themselves. So the officers seemed to be quite annoyed when they came back and she finally opened the door and let them in. Um, they were, you know, looking around and they told her things like, get ready because she was going to jail and this frightened her. So she asked them for permission to pray and they said, okay. So I guess she had some sort of prayer rug that she was kneeling on and praying silently when the officer started mocking her and they instructed her to stop praying and made her get up and move. So she sued, alleging the officers violated her First Amendment rights. And the lower court found that the officers' demands that she stop praying and move uh, didn't in any way further the investigation, but were meant solely to harass her. And the Tenth Circuit agreed that it was clearly established that Ms. Sauce had a right to pray in the privacy of her home, free from government inter interference, at least in the absence of any legitimate law enforcement interest. But the court nonetheless granted the officers qualified immunity because she didn't offer any precedent or any cases that found a First Amendment violation that had similar facts to this case. So Sauce argued that the police officer's actions were so egregiously unconstitutional that similar facts <laughs> were unlikely to have come up and that a reasonable officer would know that demanding a woman stop praying in her own home without any law enforcement justification violates the First Amendment. And this case has been considered at three conferences so far. You know, I'm going to have to read more about this case because it just sounds really outlandish just from the description that that you've you've gone through that she she's blaring talk radio and the police show up and tell her she's going to jail. You know, I, I got to read more about what, what's going on. Yeah. Here. And I think they they ultimately cited her not for a noise violation, but for like not uh, interfering with police investigation because she didn't open the door like quickly enough the first time. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that on that petition. So we recently spoke with John Elwood, who is a SCOTUS blog contributor. We're pleased to have John Elwood with us today. He's a partner at Vincent and Elkins and the king of the SCOTUS nerds. Welcome <laughs> to SCOTUS 101, John. It's good to be here. So you head up SCOTUS blog's Relist Watch. Can you tell our listeners about the significance of Relist and have you seen any important trends developing? Sure. Well, first, uh, begin. I'll begin by explaining what a relist is. When the court is going to consider a case at its conference, you know, decide whether to take it or not, uh, they distribute it. There's a, a, an indication on the docket. It says, you know, distributed for conference of, and that gives the date. That's listing. And when it does that uh, in consecutive conferences again and again, that's called relisting. And they do that when uh, a justice is trying to decide how to cast his or her vote or if they're trying to wrangle other people to vote for a grant in that case or if they're uh, writing a dissent from denial of cert in that case or respecting denial in the case, or if they're writing a per curiam reversal or vacatur of the opinion. And so uh, it's a you know, sign that something is brewing. And uh, um, you know, because of that, uh, you know, su Supreme Court nerds have been sort of watching them casually for a while. And the only thing I did differently was kind of systematically try to round them all up. 
So you obviously have a lot of fun uh, writing these posts, including linking to music videos, coming up with original poems, and my personal <laughs> favorite, the Realist Carols. So how did you get started uh, doing these posts? Uh, you know, this is the second of these kind of Supreme Court things I've done. Uh, in the late 90s, I did a Supreme Court emailed newsletter, and they both began the same way, which is it's something I did for myself. Uh, and, uh, you know, I started out just, you know, collecting the realists and looking at them. And at the time, I was kind of sporadically blogging for Volokh. And I noticed one serial realist in a case involving, um, oh, heck, the, the Panamanian strongman. I forget what his name was. <laughs> um, but uh, And I thought, well, what the heck's going on there? And I wound up posting on that. And that was kind of the skinny end of the wedge. After that, I started posting, uh, you know, again, sporadically whenever I saw something interesting. And when uh, Tom Goldstein left uh, Aiken Gump and he no longer felt like he couldn't be, you know, promoting or giving a forum to people, you know, from other firms – uh, he was the guy who kind of invited me over to do it there. And then it became, you know, more or less a weekly thing. Are you able to uh, better predict which cases the court will take up um, after doing this? Oh, you know, you, you have a sense about some of them. But uh, every case, uh, if they're done by competent counsel, they allege a split uh, and they do their best to hide vehicle problems. And so you really have to dig into a case to get a sense of uh, which way it's going to go. You know, you might have your your gut instinct, but you have to dig into most of these cases in order to figure out if it's a grant or not. So you've worked in several parts of the Justice Department, the Office of Legal Counsel, the Solicitor General's Office, the Criminal Division, the list goes on. What was your favorite post in government? I think the one I enjoyed the most was probably my last job at the Justice Department when I was uh, the deputy, the senior deputy at the Office of Legal Counsel. Um, you know, it was very diet. Uh, it was great for people with short attention spans and that you generally, you know, didn't have to deal with an issue for more than a couple of weeks. Uh, and there was a, you know, uh, there was also, uh, you know, you got to go over to the White House and hobnob with, you know, uh, people, fancy people, you know, you'd brief uh, Supreme Court nominees on their way up into hearings and, uh, you know, uh, murder board them. Uh, it was great that way. It's funny, though, because I, I wouldn't go back. You know, <laughs> it was a very stressful job. Uh, you know, I think it was you were, I used to joke that you were living dog years in that job in that uh, it definitely felt like, you know, one year in that job was worth about seven years anyplace else. And so I wouldn't go back. I think if there were the only job that I've had that I would probably go back for was my first one, which was as a line attorney in the criminal appellate section, because it was great. You got your own cases. You argued every case you briefed. And, um, you know, I, all I did all day was research and write, which are my favorite things to do. So you've argued nine cases at the Supreme Court. Uh, which were the most memorable to you? I think uh, probably the most the, the, the two that were most memorable to me were probably the Alonis case, the Facebook threats Tone case. Dougie. Yeah, Tone Dougie. Yeah. Tone Dougie. Uh, <laughs> I still get emails from Tone Dougie, uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it was it had the most it you know it was uh, it had the most notoriety um, in that uh, you know uh, I, 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 the, my picture was a featured in a New York Times editorial which I wasn't expecting, <laughs> uh, which you know wound up I have a nephew also named John Elwood, 
who was asked about that, you know, my relation to him uh, in Peoria, Illinois, uh, which I, I think amused both of us, um, and uh, which my neighbor stopped speaking to me for because I was representing a person who made these, you know, horrible threats about his wife. And then there was also, I ca- did a case, uh, uh, Gonzalez versus Town of Castle Rock, actually other way around, Town of Castle Rock versus Gonzalez about uh, whether a woman who, you know, the police didn't enforce her uh, uh, TRO against her husband at a crucial time and he wound up killing her kids. And the government uh, took the position that, of course, you know, nobody has a right to anything, which is kind of the standard government position. Um, and for that, my mother stopped speaking to me. So uh, they're both uh, kind of noteworthy cases. But, uh, you know, I uh, it would, and also very high profile. So uh, do you have any pre-argument rituals? They're not nearly as amusing as most people's. Uh, you know, I don't stay in hotels beforehand. I stay at home. Um, I knock off early. I usually watch a brain-dead movie, um, you know, something that just totally occupies your attention. Um, and then the morning of, you know, I have psych-up music, which changes from argument to argument. Uh, but even that, I only get to really listen to on the way to my office because after that, you know, you're riding in an Uber or something. And all I do at that point is I review my note cards. I have, uh, uh, you know, questions I expect to be asked on note cards and my spiel, my prepared presentation on note cards. And I just go through those kind of more or less uh, with nervous energy. So it's not not nearly as entertaining. There's no salmon, um, and I don't you know have to rub any statues anywhere. So. Could you give us a sense of uh, some of your pump up jams? What do you listen to? Um, they they really uh, run the gamut. Um, although they uh, one of them is uh, Public Enemies Bring the Noise, <laughs> which is also the song I listened to before the LSATs, which shows you uh, how old I am. It was a new song at the time. Um, and uh, one is more embarrassing. On the way, I think, to the Shepherd argument, I listened to um, Argent's song, Hold Your Head Up, which is, uh, you know, a, a FM staple um, and a, a kind of a stupid song. <laughs> uh, so you have a master's in war studies from King's College London. Has this influenced your style as a lawyer? Do you take no prisoners? Uh, well, I think, you know, it has taught me to teach, think more strategically. I don't think that I think any better than anyone else, but I have a, I, I tend to view things in military terms. Like, for example, when I have two jobs, my normal thing is to try to knock out the easier and smaller one, and, and then so I can devote my full attention to the more difficult one. And uh, most people would just think of that as, you know, a way of setting priorities. But I always think of it in terms of the von Schlieffen plan, which was <laughs> in World War One. The that was the German plan that they would knock France out of the war early, uh, just like they did in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. Uh, and then they could turn their full attention to Russia, which it was slow to mobilize. So they'd, you you know, they could be held off for a while without doing anything. It didn't actually work in World War One um, because they got bogged down on the Western Front. But that's something I always think of in terms of the von Schlieffen plan. Another thing I think of, uh, and I think of this much more, is don't reinforce failure, which is, uh, you know, most people just think of that if, if it's not working, try something else. Uh, but, you know, in, in military terms, you know, if there's one section of the front that's just bogged down, 
you know, don't keep throwing troops there. Try something else. And that's uh, something that I would uh, I, I would also apply generally in life. And then I think the last thing is, you know, this old military uh, axiom that, um, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And I think, you know, the what I think of is just trying to go with what is working. And, uh, you know, I had one argument where uh, a judge who I thought would be hostile to buy position. You know, I started seeing little expressions of interest. And because he was a more liberal judge and I was uh, arguing basically an anti-government position, uh, you know, I kind of exploited it more or less. I tried to take what advantage of it I could by saying that basically – Uh, This is the government's own fault for outsourcing this. If they were doing it with government employees, you know, there would be essentially the False Claims Act would apply to it because I was arguing that the False Claims Act didn't apply to some program that the government had kind of outsourced. And, you know, that worked. You know, a light bulb went off (laughs) over his head and and that kind of worked. And uh, I had another case where, um, you know, I was more or less outflanked by the panel uh, and being even more enthusiastic about my argument than I had expected them to be. And so you just, you know, you kind of got to go with that. And again, I wouldn't think of that. uh, It's nothing, no insight that anybody else would have had. But I always think of it in terms of some sort of military uh, analogy. Yeah, you and you and Lisa Blatt both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you're half of a Washington power couple. Your wife, Courtney, is the general counsel of the CIA. So what are conversations at the dinner table like now? Vague. <laughs> uh, most things she can't talk about. Uh, you know, all I hear about the office is, you know, tough day, easy day, and, you know, maybe personnel issues because those are unclassified. Uh, but, you know, one of my, my favorite and proudest moments when I worked at the Justice Department with my wife was when we were both working on a classified program, and we found that out when we arrived at a meeting and saw each other. Uh, And I was always very proud of that, that, you know, uh, we did not breathe a word about it at home. Uh, I thought that was the way it should be. I later embarrassed both of us in the meeting when I referred to her as mother. So, you know, which is, of course, the name when you're around the kids. So. Uh, So you clerked for Justice Kennedy. What's your favorite memory of your time clerking for him? So I had, just because of the order I arrived in, I had the office closest to his chambers, which made me the de facto kind of, you know, miscellaneous projects clerk. And my favorite was when he called me when he was on the road in North Carolina and he said, you know, I was expecting, you know, something much more momentous, but he just said, you know, I'm in town X. I'd like to know a good barbecue place. (laughs) And I clerked in October term 96, which was before really the internet took off. So what I had to do was I searched for food reviews on Westlaw and I actually found one. (laughs) They had them? They had them. You know, thank goodness they still have have newspapers on there. And so I found one and uh, it was conveniently located across from the emergency room entrance. So, uh, you know, if you, uh, you know, if it's a little bit too rich, you're prepared. (laughs) Uh, Can you tell us something about Justice Kennedy that people might not know? Well, it's kind of dull, but he uh, takes, you know, he takes every case very seriously. I mean, admittedly, uh, I was there during his first decade on the court. He's now been there for three decades. Uh, And so my information is outdated. Uh, But, you know, it didn't matter what the case was. I remember distinctly we were sitting around. He has all clerks talk about all cases. We were sitting around to his uh, table 
discussing a really hideously boring and inconsequential admiralty case. And he got out his, you know, he got out his big poster board and he was drawing diagrams to illustrate various points and talking about it. And it was just the dullest thing ever. And yet we devoted a good, you know, 90 minutes to talking about this case that uh, no one would ever remember. And that was one thing that really struck me was how seriously he takes all of these cases. And, you know, there was another case where, you know, you, you could always count on him to, uh, you know, fax something in at like two o'clock in the morning because he really does think about these cases very hard. And, you know, in a case that uh, I think most people wouldn't even recognize, you know, he faxed in, you know, at some very late hour, uh, you know, a handwritten fax and his handwriting's terrible, uh, you know, saying, you know, here with the product of late night brooding. And it was, you know, uh, you know, his long analysis of the thing that had, you know, come to him as he was thinking about it late at night. So uh, it's it's a pretty dull thing. He takes it very seriously. Um, I, I will also add one other thing, which is that he is a profoundly decent man and he is a great boss in the sense that you know, he never raises his voice. He never says a harsh word. Um, and uh, he treats everybody really decently. You know, he's a really good man and he's a good boss. There are plenty of people who are not good bosses. You hear about them all <laughs> over. Uh, and he's not one of them. He is, he is really a, a very good boss. And he, one thing I made him do uh, during my last time, uh, during the end of my clerkship, I took pictures of each of the clerks at their desks figuring, you know, some of these people are going to be famous someday. I'd like to have a picture of them <laughs> at their workstation. So I have a picture of Ted Cruz or click my term, you know, with whatever. He had some, you know, cartoon figure on his computer. And I, I asked him <laughs> to sit in the desk where he would, the seat where he would talk to me. So I'd have a picture of him and sort of at the business end, you know, of, uh, of our relationship together sitting in the chair there. And I still have the photo and he has this kind of you know, expression of, you know, you simpleton, but he <laughs> was very indulgent in letting me take the picture. So that's great. That's great. So one final question that we ask all of our uh, guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? So a lot of the good answers from the living and recent uh, justices, recently living justices. Uh, I've already been able to have decent conversations with my wife, clerk for the old chief, uh, Rehnquist, uh, and through happenstance, I've happened to, you know, have a number of good conversations with Scalia and Thomas, um, uh, and even with uh, Justice Kagan at OSG Christmas parties and um, uh, and the chief justice. So I think it would probably be uh, Robert Jackson, uh, because, you know, he's a fascinating character. He was one of the court's great writers. You know, of course, he wrote the Steel Seizures case with that great line about, you know, uh, the difficult, as difficult as Pharaoh's dreams, interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. Um, but also, uh, he had such a great life. You know, he was the last justice, I think, who didn't go to law school, who just read the law. You know, he was, as a sitting Supreme Court justice, the Nuremberg prosecutor, you know, which is, you know, maybe that's a separation of powers problem, or at least a bad idea. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he just lived a fascinating life. And so I think I'd, I'd talk to him. And, you know, you can't talk talk about it too directly because people clam up if you uh, approach it too directly. But the subject I would try to get at is just, uh, you know, the difference of him being going from being FDR as president, where he's, you know, defending presidential prerogatives, you know, like lend lease and stuff like that to, um, 
to the point where he is, you know, one of the the justices who who you know basically called foul on another president's uh, uh, prerogatives in the steel seizures case. So I think it'd be kind of whether there was a change in him uh, or a change of perspective, or whether it just happened to be that uh, you know FDR did it right and Truman <laughs> didn't. So that's great. Thanks, uh, John, for joining us. Sure. Thank you for having me. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, where I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. Are you ready? Let's do it. First question. Who was the longest-serving Chief Justice? Ooh, Chief Justice. Oh, I don't know. It's a pretty important one. Pretty important Chief Justice. Rehnquist? I don't know. Don't roll your eyes at me. I'm not rolling my eyes. I don't know. Uh, John Marshall? Yes. Okay. (laughs) He served 34 years. Although... Uh, William Rehnquist came close in his overall tenure on the court. Um, he clocked in at 33 years overall, but only 19 of those were spent as the as chief. chief justice. Okay. Yes. Second question. Which chief justice had the shortest tenure? Was it someone who died? No. Short it was tenure. someone who had two positions on the court. I'm like not up on chief You kn- You know history. this one. It's really early. I don't know early chief justices. <laughs> It's it's John Rutledge, who okay. was appointed by George Washington. Uh, so he served as chief justice for only four months, and he previously served as an associate justice for one year. Uh, but he left the court to become the chief justice of the South Carolina Court uh, of yes. Common Pleas and, and Sessions. <laughs> so then he comes so back funny. only for four months, and, and that was it. Then what, what happened after that? Did he just leave again? Um well, he was recess appointed, and the Senate oh, con- uh, okay. refused to confirm him. And I, I, I may be, I may need to look into this, but I believe he he may have committed suicide after oh. after that. Um, Thanks. Yeah, we'll have to look into that, and we'll yeah. we'll we'll uh, get get John Malcolm, our fact checker, on that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Third question. Speaking of George Washington, how many justices did he appoint to the Supreme Court? Um, I think it's 11. That is correct. Woo-hoo. Including three chiefs and uh, one of the only recess appointments to the Supreme Court, which was Rutledge, as I mentioned. Cool. Fourth question. Yes. I'm excited about this one. Oh, no. How many justices hail from your home state of Michigan? Oh, I have. I don't know. Are there any justices from Michigan? There are. I don't know. I'm just going to say three. Close. There were two. So Henry Billings Brown, who was appointed by President Benjamin Harrison in 1891. I know nothing about him. And Frank Murphy, who was appointed by FDR in 1940. I don't know much about him either. Now, in case our listeners are keeping score, there were five justices from my home state (laughs) of Kentucky. (laughs) Although not any in recent years. I think New York uh, has has the, the most, though. Something like... I don't know, 15 or 16. Yeah, which is, that seems right. Maybe even more than that at this point. <laughs> um, okay. Final question. Who was the only justice to be impeached? Oh, dang it. I know this. He came up in a recent round of trivia. Yeah, it's, it's Justice Chase, right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. So he was impeached for showing political bias, but he was acquitted. Uh, and I read a little bit about impeachment of judges. So 14 federal judges have been impeached, and almost all of them were convicted and removed, um, or they resigned. I think something like 11 out of 14 were 
ended up leaving the court, uh, the court they were on. Some of the early ones were impeached for uh, for reasons like drunkenness. <laughs> that's a little more fun than the you know financial fraud, tax evasion things we see in more recent years. That's hilarious. And one judge was impeached after he accepted a judgeship in the Confederacy. Oh. Yeah. So interesting, interesting stuff. Well, I think you did a pretty good job in trivia. Yeah. Um, but thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.